uh, to Your Property Podcast. Me and Pines and my co-host. I'm Hara Doan. Uh, and you're finally back with us. You, we've had months without you. I know. I know. I've been skiving off, haven't I? But uh, How's um, I've been doing it all by myself. Oh, and a sterling job you've been doing as well. So thank <laughs> you for thank that. You. So, so I, I introduced my co-host, but really I'm your co-host. So um, yeah, I think so. Maybe okay. I should start introducing you. Yeah, let's do that. From now on. Okay. Uh, okay, so today's an interesting one. Um, we are doing a series of articles in YPN about um, different ways of funding property projects. Uh, so whether those are uh, property investments, uh, developments, larger developments, uh, indeed, what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and the ways, some of the challenges in raising funds for those projects and how uh, property investors and developers being particularly entrepreneurial and innovative bunch, how they have overcome those and funded their projects in different ways. And today we've got an old friend of YPNs on the call with us. Um, I, I'm hugely impressed and amazed and, and in awe of every, every, all of the projects that he does. Uh, so it's an absolute pleasure to be joined uh, once again by Glenn Dells. So Glenn, thank you for um, thank you for jumping on the call with us today. I'm really happy to be here, and uh, um, I'm just hoping that the line will hold out. I've just had to move to see if uh, there's a signal problem on my end because I missed most of that introduction. But I'm assuming you said nice things about us. <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> you will know. We're always. We're always nice. So, uh, okay. So, sound sound issues. So, Glenn's struggling to hear us a little bit. Harry, can you hear me? Okay. Is I can hear you fine, unfortunately. Okay. Oh, <laughs> one of those ones. So, uh, so Glenn, um, I, I did a hugely flattering introduction, uh, just saying that I'm always impressed by the size and scale of the projects that you take on. Um, and you're, I guess you're just your ability to kind of step up and take on these bigger projects um, when many of us would, would look at them and just quake in fear, I guess. Um, so for those who don't know you, and before we go on to talk about the, the, you know, the difficulties of finance, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know, who you are and what you now do in property? Um, my name is Glenn Delve, and uh, what I now do is um, commercial conversions. I have been focusing on this strategy since prior approval came out in 2013, bought our first deal, uh, which was an office conversion to nine apartments in June 2014. And we have done, I think we're on our 20th project now, uh, just scaling that same model. So referring to your comments about the size of things we take on, it's really based on the fact that we're not really doing anything new. We just scale a model that we've proven and that we know works. Okay. And um, your, the, the size of the projects ranges up to, I'm, I'm looking at one of your projects here, which is sort of a third unit conversion. Um, so they would be typically around that sort of size, sort of 20 to sort of 40 units. That's where we were. Um, we are now, the last uh, four developments we've bought would be 95 units, the biggest. Uh, one is 22 units, the other two are 71 and 83. So what we've done is, is since 2014, we started with conversions to eight, uh, sorry, nine units, four units, 
seven units, that kind of size. And we've gradually scaled and we have done it gradually. So there's been a 12 unit scheme, a 20 unit scheme, a 30 unit scheme, uh, 41 units, 53, 56. So literally we've just moved up almost through the gears as it were, just proving the model each time, getting comfortable both for us to get comfortable, our lenders to get comfortable and our investors to get comfortable that we know what we're doing. When you say um, units, sort of, are they sort of big flats? Are they small studios? Because the units can kind of, you know, if you're doing sort of 90 uh, buildings of 93 bedroom flats, that's absolutely huge compared to sort of buildings of 90 studios. So where do you kind of fit in in, in that scale? Okay, well, without getting too technical, we've never built a studio. Um, we, we just don't uh, think that's where the market wants to be. Um, but our flats can be as small as 30 square meters. So um, we need to know what we're talking about. So our size, the optimal size for us is about 35 to 37 square meters. Um, we don't go below 30 because that's not mortgageable. Uh, many of our flats will be up to 50 square meters. But once we start getting above 48 square meters, we'll see if we can make a flat into a two bed. Okay, um, so you're kind really- of in the one bedroom market. Yeah, we're very much in the one bedroom market because that's where we find affordability is at its best. And currently where the market's a little bit softer, you really want to make sure your product is as affordable as it can be. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and Glenn, are you, um, these are units that you're selling rather than um, holding to refinance or is it a combination? Hitherto, we've been selling. Uh, that was very much our, our, our starting point. We're now looking at holding a proportion of each of our developments. So we haven't done that yet, but um, there's a number of things combining now to make that a sensible way forward. Our business of a certain size, so the banks would like to see um, an asset based on the balance sheet. They'd like to see alternative revenue streams, i.e. in our case, rent. And also with the market softening and the mortgage lenders beginning to uh, lower their saturation levels that they're prepared to do on each block, we're finding that actually finding lenders for the last 20%, roughly speaking, of um, our apartments is getting harder. We can do it. We've, we've never the opportunity is there now to tick a lot of boxes and, and wrap it all together by holding some of our own developments. Okay, right. Interesting. And um, we're, there's loads of challenges in this as a strategy. I'm, I'm sure, um, you, you know, one, we, we could touch upon all of them. The one we're going to concentrate on today is finance. But um, I wanted, before we move on to that, I wanted to sort of um, just get a feel for, you know, I've, I've done a, a number of conversions myself, but mine have tended to be listed buildings. Um, and the cost per square meter um, on the build cost is, it just seems to be hugely variable. Do you have, when you're kind of doing an assessment project, work towards a, an approximation on square per square meter um, conversion cost? Um, unfortunately, the line did break up a bit. I think you're asking though about how the costs vary. Um, when we started, the costs were lower because generally with smaller lenders and smaller schemes, the, um, the costs are lower. As we've scaled, the costs have increased, the companies get bigger, uh, their overheads get bigger, therefore the square foot rate goes up. But we now have our own in-house QS and project manager that we used to use one person all the time from a company called Gleet. Uh, He was so good that we decided to hire him. And he now does um, a cost estimate in-house on every scheme we do. So we now have a pretty good idea of what we expect any tender process to throw out even before we start. But it's definitely true to say, Anne, that the costs go up 
um, the bigger they get. Um, you'd think it would be the opposite. You'd think that because of scale, you can get it cheaper. But in fact, the lenders get bigger, their overhead gets bigger. But then so does our protection because we end up in design and build contracts with more and more professional contractors. And therefore, they tend to be a lot more professional in how they do things and how they work. And therefore, that can make our job easier in the long run as well. Okay, so you managed to remove some of the uncertainty of uh, uh, that, that was inherent in those slightly smaller projects. So let's talk about finance for a few seconds, um, mm. because I'll, I'll explain how we've done ours and some of the problems for it. So we would have normally a principal lender. We, we used um, uh, Crowd Property on a couple of our projects, and then yeah. we would have um, private investors who would make up we borrow. 60 to 70% of all of the funds required to do the project from our principal lender and the balance would either come from our own pockets or from our private investors. And yeah. that's a challenge because you are, you know, you're kind of finding projects and then you have to line finance. It's, it's very difficult to sort of line up ready and willing investors whilst you're looking for a project because they'll go off and fund something else. What was your experience prior to the, the new solution that we're going to move on to in a minute? How, how have you been doing this up until now? Well, and, and very similar to you, Anne. Um, I never worried. I, I'm, there's always that question, do I find the deal first or the investor first? I always felt that we have to remember that we are serving the investor. They are part of our customer base. We are solving their problem. And if we have a deal that presents well, returns a, a good return to them, um, and provides them the security they're looking for, then we are providing a solution to them. So I've never worried about finding investors terribly much. I've always been quite prepared to find a deal first and then go out to the investor base. And that investor base developed. So clearly the people we started with when we were doing nine unit schemes, not many of them are still with us now where we're doing 95 unit schemes. They, they tend to be a different kind of person. Uh, like you, we, we use the banks. We tend to scale a bit more on the cost. So we quite regularly borrow up to 80% of the cost from the banks. Uh, stretch senior finances out there to that level at the moment and possibly even higher at times. Um, and then we the balance will come from either, just as yourselves, uh, our own profits and our own reserves or uh, much more, to be honest, um, from investment as well that we bring in. And that's a mixture of high net worth investors, um, some of them are big, ultra high net worth investors, uh, also some smaller investors and some SaaS pension money has been put in recently. And then we moved on to the, the new kind of product that we're going to talk about later on. And um, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it, sometimes, just in terms of organizing the finance from different sources that's required at, at one particular point. So with that... Has that been your frustration up until now and, and hence, you know, looking for a solution to that? Just trying to line it all up at the right time? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think finance is the greatest challenge that most of us face. Um, once you've found a deal and, and, and obviously when you're new in a strategy, finding the deal, finding that first deal can be thereafter. Once we're in construction, I have to say the team here do an amazing job. Uh, as I say, uh, the chap that we brought in from Gleeds runs our property team and, and they pretty much do deliver the developments. The team also deliver the sales. My principal function in the company, I would say, is finding, raising, and arranging finance, whether it's from the banks, whether it's from the investors. Um, and at times, it can be incredibly frustrating. The goalposts move, um, both with the investors and the banks. Mm. 
the economy changes, the challenges in the economy change. Some of that is not in our control. Brexit, for example, has already scared off some of our investors. Um, so we're always out there and it can be a frustration that, you know, some of the stuff that controls our investors and their investment is completely out of our hands. Okay. So um, it, just before we move on to the solution and, you know, what you're doing next, I wanted to ask. Oh, no. When how you say the you... solution, that kind of makes it sound a bit, you know. Sinister? Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> it's the opposite. So, so um, we'll refer to it as something else in a minute because uh, <laughs> I, I was worried. So um, how has your role changed, Glenn, from when you first started? Were you very involved in the project? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, I think when you, when you start out, you're doing these smaller deals, of nine units and seven units. Um, the team that you've drawn around you is still relatively small. Uh, we were very early adopters of prior approval. So, for instance, even with our architects, I was teaching them what I wanted, whereas now we've used, uh, just, we've used pretty much only two sets of architects since we started, so they now know what we want. And I can send them a scheme, and they'll pretty much produce what we want um, straight off the bat. But in the beginning, I was heavily involved in just sitting down with them, drawing my own little sketches on the paper about how I wanted the, the apartment to lay out, we were very heavily involved with the contractors about setting the specification and the schedule of finishes. So absolutely, very much hands-on when I was starting. But now we have a company of 11 people plus the two directors. We have a wider power team outside our company of probably 10 to 12 people that we use on a very regular basis and a wider team that's almost countless. Um, so my role actually becomes more and more defined. But certainly in the early days, uh, it was much broader. Okay. Um, and so to overcome this problem of, uh, of, I guess, you know, the turning the tap on and off when finance is required, um, you have created uh, a bond, an investment bond. So for those uh, 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 listening to this and reading the article in the magazine who are woefully ignorant of such things, like and me. I include myself <laughs> in that number, uh, yeah, what is a bond and how do you work? Well, I was also um, totally uninformed about bonds. And um, actually, around about, where are we? It was around about November last year, a lady who's on our mentoring program uh, approached me. So in theory, we're meant to be mentoring her um, in commercial conversions. But she approached me and said, have you ever thought about raising a bond? And I'd heard of bonds, but from my perspective, they were for big companies. They were companies that were listed and they would have to be FCA approved and they would have to go through a huge amount of process. And that just wasn't where we were at. You know, as I mentioned, we're a company of 11 people, but that's not 110 people, that's 11 people. And she said, no, you can raise what's called a mini bond. Um, the uh, whole process uh, can be actually outsourced to an extent. Your, your requirement in-house is to have somebody internally that fires the information at, at us. We'll put the bond together and we will arrange the marketing of the bond for you. Um, at that point, my ears pricked up. But essentially what it is um, to kind of answer the question is um, people – that wants to invest small amounts of money, anywhere from 500 pounds up to maybe a typical amount of maybe 5,000 to seven, 8,000 pounds or more. We have one investor who wants to put in 25,000 and others who want to do more maybe. But effectively anywhere on that scale, people who don't have the time to get involved in property can invest in a bond 
they get a guaranteed coupon, so a guaranteed interest rate, um, in our case, 8.85%, and that, is paid, that interest is paid to them quarterly. The bond is for five years. They can't actually get their money back during that time. It's important to state that. Um, but that during that five years, they're getting quarterly interest payments, and we get the amount of the money that is invested in that bond to use in the company for a five-year period. So it's very predictable for us. It works well for us because each of our deals generally takes about two and a half years. So we kind of get a couple of cycles out of one bond raise. Um, so in essence, it's a, a, a savings scheme for an investor. It's quite passive. They can learn on the way if they want to, but effectively they get quarterly interest and then at the end they get their principal sum back. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Okay. Now let's, let's go into all the bits that would fill me with horror. Well, not fill me with horror, <laughs> but just all the questions that I would have. So uh, I'm going to fire a few questions. So the administration of, the, of, of, of um, interest payments, how is that handled? The collection of funds handled? Um, and what did they, what, in the very beginning, what are they looking for in your business, Glenn? So the, the company that, that you're working with, the organization you're working with to, to create this bond for you, are they looking at a sort of track record of profitability? So let's start with that. So did you need to be able to demonstrate this is, this is what we deliver? Yeah, very definitely. So the lady that approached me was uh, linked with a company that got involved with bonds. And she had obviously got to know us during the mentoring program. She'd seen us. She'd seen how we delivered. So not just what we deliver, but how do we deliver? How do we work? How, do, how are we with people? And, and essentially, um, I think that was the key criteria for them. Are they reliable? Are they uh, trustworthy? And do they have a track record that demonstrates both of those qualities? And if the answer is yes, then they say um, there is a story there that will hold a bond together. And that was the, the kind of first criteria. So um, much of what we do is ensuring that all of the information we put in the market to support the bond is absolutely uh, verified as correct and demonstrates that we are a profitable, trustworthy, serial developer. Um, and in our case, we were able to demonstrate, for instance, that we made money on all our developments, that we had gradually scaled, that we, were, we had a proper team in the office that was running everything. And, and I think you have to be able to give an investor. That's what they're looking for. Is there a story here that gives confidence to the people who'd be looking to invest? And um, their role, as well as sort of, I don't know how that, how that ends up in front of people, is that via sort of FCAs, or are you taking on the advertising of the bond yourself, Glenn? So what, other than the creation of the bond itself, how do they, you know, how do they make sure, how are they confident or deliver confidence to you that they can go out and sell this thing? So they, um, they will put together a marketing plan that will include some um, you know, PR, uh, some social media, some pay-per-click advertising. Uh, it's pretty much like anything else that you want to market, really. You find where your target market hangs out and you, you push something in front of them. And these days, um, much of that is very smart marketing. So uh, it's directed advertising, it's directed marketing. What that needs to be followed up by, though, particularly with a bond, is often people have questions. You need a follow-up system. So the company we uh, work with actually provided one dedicated individual that literally carries around a phone. Anybody phones up with an inquiry, he will answer that phone and handle that inquiry. And, and that's 
essential because, you know, as much as any invitation document, uh, whatever, whatever you put in front of someone, there's always going to be questions. Someone needs to answer those questions. And that was very much part of the service that the company we're working with um, actually provided. Did you have to provide any information okay. um, to the, um, the guy, the, the dedicated guy you had answering the phone? Did you have to sort of train him and what the money was going to be used for and sort of what your agreement was or... Um, did you have nothing at all to do with that? No, the, the, um, essentially what we did, we spent many months working with the company. So we started the process in November. We actually only launched a bond uh, pretty much last month. So it's taken uh, about three to four months of quite a lot of work, putting together all the information that briefs people about who we are, what we do, how the money would be used, um, and, and demonstrating our track record. So that bond document was also clearly given to the individual, but he also came and spent some time with us, asked us some questions, uh, got to know us uh, really well. Um, and, and that was all really so that he was uh, hugely prepared. He had the whole bond document in front of him. Plus he'd spent some time with us, knew about us, knew what we were doing and was able to handle the inquiries that were coming in. Okay, and for you, um, sort of how time intensive was this process? You know, was it a full time job over these past three months or was it, you know, sort of an hour a day? Uh, well, there I'm grateful for my business partner, Justine. Uh, <laughs> for me, I was hardly involved at all. I'm, mm-hmm. the, I'm the business strategist, I'm the driver, I'm the deal maker, if you like. Justine is the process person, the detail person. Uh, but for Justine, she would say probably. I would say 75 to 80% of her time for about three months was collating information, putting it in the right order, sending it off to them, dealing with the feedback, reading the bond document, making amendments, making adjustments. So, yes, I would say that for anyone thinking of undertaking this, you will need someone that's going to sit there for about three months with almost nothing else on their desk. (laughs) Okay. Um, And... Um, what are the costs involved? Because I'm guessing when someone sort of talked about this initially with you, Glenn, you said your reaction was the same as mine would be. This sounds expensive. This sounds like something that big corporations undertake, um, you know, like a, a public listing. So, um, you know, were you, uh, how much does this actually cost to, to bring together? Well, you know, um, I think every bond is different, so it'd be wrong to quote figures, but it's tens of thousands to set this up properly and further tens of thousands to market it. And we are probably approaching the six-figure level now for what it's cost to get us thus far. And what guarantees do, do they give you in terms of take up the bond? Was that down to your ability to... The market because you know it's it's frightening to spend sort of tens of thousands of pounds and getting up to hundreds of thousands of pounds if you don't know that they're going to be able to deliver customers and and and, and get up tech on the bond so what reassurances did you have at that stage no i'm none and the the reassurance is only the track record of the people raising the bond for you because they yeah. um if you, if anyone's considering doing this you should only do it with people who've raised bonds before look at their success um, because one of the things that happens is they get paid um, a small percentage, a very small percentage of what is raised. So often they're not doing it for the 
fees that you pay them, they're actually paying it for the small percentage of the bond raise itself. And that's part of the cost of the bond. When we're calculating our cost of what the money actually costs us overall, you've got the cost of the creation of the bond, the cost of the marketing of the bond, and the cost of the uh, small commission that's paid back to the people that actually raised it and marketed it for you. Um, so re they have a vested interest in making sure that they are working with people that they truly believe have a story that will work in the market, attract investors and give them confidence to invest because otherwise their return would actually be pretty small. Okay. Did you have a um, sort of figure in mind uh, that you wanted to raise uh, before sort of embarking on this or is it or is there like an infinite number that you're just going to wait and see how much you can get? Yeah, uh, in, uh, an infinite number would be wonderful. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the, the, idea, the idea has always been that if the bond is successful, it's something we could repeat. So the idea with the first bond was to actually target a minimum of two million um, with possibly a top side view of five million. And then if um, we wanted to do it again, we would always be targeting that five million pound number. And um, what sort of timescales have you uh, have you given to sort of hit that sort of minimum threshold of two million? So a launch typically um, would take about three to four months. Um, it really depends on the kind of traction you get in the marketplace, and that can depend on what is going on in the marketplace. So, um, you know, are there other headlines that are grabbing information and news time? Um, you know, we're out in things like uh, the investment press and the financial press. You know, so what else is going on? What's, what's grabbing people's attention? What other investment opportunities are out there at the same time? So it's never, it's not a, it's, it's very much the way it's been presented to us is this is not an exact science. It absolutely is a kind of, look, this is what we think it'll take three to four months. But, um, and we're going to target two million and you might get five million, but we don't really know until we put it in the market. So I think, you know, it, for us, it was a solution that we feel has been worthwhile and has also, you know, it was definitely worth us going for because it provided something we didn't have. But, you know, this, this is probably not for people that are just doing one or two developments of a smaller size. It is something that, you know, we got to a point and thought this was a good option for us. And I just think it, it's this is something that I think you can do to a certain scale or not. But you're going to have to be of a certain scale to even think about getting into this kind of thing, I would suggest. Mm. And yeah. how has the launch gone so far? So uh, have you reached the two million yet or... How close are you um, to that number? Like this before we started, we're into about week, uh, I don't know, four or five, whatever. Um, so the first, the first thing's happening is awareness. It's not the kind of thing that someone sees um, one advert and then goes, oh, you know what, I'm going to throw £10,000 into that. Mm -hmm. um, it's the old marketing adage, you need five or six touch points. Um, the first thing is to get the awareness, um, rate, get some leveling engagement with the customer. Then they're going to think about it. Then they're going to maybe ask some questions. So we're very much expecting the fundraise to be back-ended. Um, you know, it, it will take that time. We're not a household name. You know, it, it might be different if it was, I don't know, one of the big house builders. I'm not going to mention any specific names, mm -hmm. but, you know, a national house builder that somebody knows, you know, you see a brand, you look at it, and you think, wow, I, I recognize that. They must be pretty sound. That might be a quicker decision. But for someone to invest with someone like Asir, most people won't have heard of us. They're going to do some due diligence. They're going to make some, you know, make some time to do some investigation. 
So we were always prepared for it to be a, a slow burn, if you like, with a late commitment because people have got to go on a journey of discovery. Mm. And it's, again, returning to that word of confidence. They've, they've got to come to a place of confidence that having done their investigation, that we are someone they'd like to invest with. And the other thing that we, we also were told and, and makes absolute sense to us is often in your first bond raise, and one of the reasons the first bond raise might be lower is people will invest a smaller amount and then they see if you do what you say you're going to do. So will you pay the interest payments on time without being chased? Um, are you going to keep them informed? And then if you do another bond raise, then they think, well, actually, yeah, they paid me the interest when they said they would. They've done everything they said they would. I've begun to see their boards around. I begin to have a bit more confidence who they are. And then the next time you go out with a bond raise, they tend to invest twice as much or three times as much because they've got that confidence. So I do think it's all about that word confidence. And therefore, on your first bond raise, um, it's going to take time for them to do that due diligence so they can get nice and confident with it. Okay. And... Um... Comparing this method of raising finance um, for the business compared to you know, what you were doing previously, um, I'd be interested to know how the cost of fund that, uh, finance compares, but, but also there's, I, I guess there's um, an additional cost in that you, you potentially will have money coming in at times when you don't necessarily need it. You might not have a new project happening at, at that point. Um, so... Or, or are you looking at this as a way of, okay, well, we could pay off some of our more expensive kind of private finance and it, it, and it broadly equates to the same. How, how are you looking at it when comparing the two um, sort of sources of finance and what are the advantages that the bond has over, as you say, I think sort of going, you know, uh, going out and scratching around to find the finance as and when you need it. One of the major advantages, uh, there's two major advantages to a bond, really. One is five-year money. So we can get two deals out of that, and five-year money is very attractive. Two, it's significantly cheaper than the money that we currently um, use for our developments. During our development journey, we've paid annualized returns of anywhere between uh, kind of 15 to 18% is where we are now. When we first started out, we were paying up to annualized returns of 35% on money. So to get money, even at an all-in cost of something like 10, 11, 12%, um, is quite significantly cheaper for us. And therefore means, number one, we can win more deals because uh, the cost of doing the deal is cheaper if the money is cheaper. So we can actually pick the best deals. Um, so, you know, if you can afford to pay slightly more for a deal because you've actually got cheaper finance, then you can actually cherry pick exactly which deals you think fit your portfolio that you absolutely love. Whereas sometimes when you're up against it and you're just trying to win one or two or three deals a year, um, you know, if, if your funds are cost more costly than other people's, you're not going to have as much choice. So there's a lot of intangible benefits uh, to having that money available and certainly having it as five-year money, having it as significantly less expensive, having it available so that you can actually uh, move very quickly when a deal comes up. That's another way of winning the best deals, being able to move very quickly, but also being able to afford to pay slightly more and being able to cherry-pick your deals. There are so many benefits to raising money in this way. Um, and, you know, for us, that's why we felt that it was worth investigating this. Then we decided to invest in it. 
And hopefully I'll be able to sit here in a few months and report back to you that it has indeed been very successful and that we may be planning another bond raise in six months time or something like that. But we'll see. Who knows? We might find out that the best, you know, the best thing to come out of it is raising our profile a bit. Um, one, one of the, I can tell you one huge benefit that's come out of it is the quality of the information we had to put together for the bond um, and the due diligence we had to go through to make sure it's absolutely accurate. Because when you scale as fast as we have and you grow organically in the way we have, sometimes your record keeping is not as good as it should be. Um, but we've had to sit down, work out absolutely how much profit we made in every deal, who the investors were. We've had to put a whole document together about who the bank was, how quickly they got paid back, everything that you could possibly want to know. We've had to get that information, put it together in a quality document. And I think that's a huge payback, uh, whatever the result actually, thank, uh, thank, um, frankly, of whatever the bond raise is. That will come in massively helpful even if you're raising money with private investors now that you've got a portfolio of information that's that you've collated and is there ready to ready for people to digest so they can see the the performance of the business over the last x number of years um so it's you know it's, it's made you be more disciplined in terms of the marketing materials i guess and not just investors actually the banks love it um it's opened up other investment streams definitely um you know, and, and I think what happens is as you scale, you do need to become uh, more professional in how you do things. And so being able to send across a document that has been subject to a huge amount of due diligence that you're able to say, look, this has been verified. Um, this is absolutely 100 percent correct. And you can take this to the bank, as it were, uh, to high net worth investors, ultra high net worth investors, maybe even private finance institutions, the banks. You know, that is that is a document uh, worth its weight in gold, quite genuinely. Okay, fantastic. Glenn, that's been really, really useful, actually, really interesting. I think it's a, it's a, um, I think finance is, is the, how we finance projects is developing uh, very, very rapidly. I see you've used sort of crowdfunding uh, sites for some of your developments as well. Um, it's interesting that with a bond as well, you know, ordinary people, everyday people can get involved in these projects and profit from these projects without having to take on the workload like you and I, you or I might do. Um, do you see, uh, do you see in the future uh, us sort of moving away from the mainstream banks or do you think that these other sources of finance will always go hand in hand with our primary lenders? I think it'll always be hand in hand. I think there is now an alternative market um, of peer-to-peer uh, -peer lenders, the crowdfunders, the, the the bonds of these world, um, the you know, and, and bonds start with the little mini bonds like we've done, all the way up to massive bonds with household brands, probably pay a bit less, have more confidence. That word again. Um, but some people will always use the mainstream banks, and I don't think the mainstream banks are going anywhere. Uh, clearly, there are people that are reinventing banking. There's some interesting banks. Um, some of them, are, some of the challenger banks now have been around for a while and actually have become almost a little bit stale. But there's new challenger banks coming out all the time. And I think the advantage of that is some people that are starting banks now are entrepreneurs focused on customer service rather than traditional bankers who just maybe trained with Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs or something and then set up a fund and then become a bank. And I think all of these things mean that um, us as consumers and 
we all are uh, having to use the banks or banking in some way. And, you know, for some of us who have funds to invest, we then become investors and wondering where to put our funds. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a place. But quite rightly, the market is the market is forcing everybody to up their game and serve the consumer better. And I think that can only be a good thing. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure. We we haven't had time to go in, in depth into some of your case studies, but we have got all of that information that's going into the pages of the magazine. I think we would love to catch up with you again soon and um, do a piece that's less, less focused on finance and um, go into some of the projects in a, in a bit more detail and scaling up the businesses and, um, and how to fact something that we can earmark for a future edition. Yeah, I so think it's been yeah but really good really good so um then we wish you every success in the uh launch of the bond um look looking forward to catching up with you and finding out how it goes and um how it's gone and uh, the, the the projects that you're taking on over the next sort of months and years as well so uh, good luck with that good luck with the rest of the business and we look forward to catching up with you again soon well thank you for the opportunity to speak to you um i i'd love to speak to you on scaling i think uh that could be a really interesting uh, subject for the magazine to take on. And I think there are many people out there who might be too fearful of scaling and, and actually do have an opportunity to scale. So that's something I'd love to uh, be involved in if you ever decide to pick that up as a subject. But thank you again for the opportunity to talk about the bond. It's been great to talk to you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can go to yourpropertynetwork.co.uk forward slash stuff. You can download the article that we create from the podcast so you can see all of the case study pictures, all the uh, financials um, and a bit more information uh, in there as well. And there's loads of other useful things to download uh, on that web page as well. And don't forget to rate, comment and subscribe to our podcast.